In 2018, Forbes magazine published a list of the most powerful people in the world. And high on that list were people like Vladimir Putin, Donald Trump, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, Warren Buffett, and Elon Musk. 74 of the 75 people on that list were either in politics or in business, and the lone exception was Pope Francis, who was number six on the list. We live in a culture that is enamored with power. We're fascinated by powerful people, and whether we'll admit it or not, whatever power we have, we'd like to have just a little bit more. Even those who are opposed to those in power, whether in politics or business or entertainment or any other field, use the power of dissent to try to get their way. So let's talk for a moment about power. Some are obsessed with it, with acquiring more of it, with exercising it. And it's true that power can do great good. But the challenge is that far too often, power ends up being used for selfish purposes. That's why we get so anxious when power is concentrated in the hands of just a few people or institutions. Our founding fathers were opposed to concentrations of power. They believed that far too often, often those who were wielding power used them for selfish ends. They became corrupted by them, which is why they created a system of checks and balances, which people ever since have been trying to circumvent. So what is power? Well, one definition is control, authority, or influence over others, or said more plainly, the ability to get what we want from others. Now, humanly speaking, power comes from a variety of places, including money and brains and physical strength and beauty and position. But the Bible also tells us that power ultimately comes from God. And it tells us that God shares power with us. One example of that is in Genesis chapter 1, when we're told that we are to rule over creation. Now, to be clear, that doesn't mean that we're to abuse the earth. That's a twisting of what God asked Adam and Eve to do. Instead, ruling over creation is to manage the resources, the natural resources that we have, in productive ways, to take care of the world in a way that benefits others. What this means is that we're to use power in ways that honors God and serves others. Now, the story of the Bible is that things got started off well, but quickly went wrong. Adam and Eve, when tempted by Satan, went off script. Sin entered the world, and corruption entered the hearts of people. And that's when power started to be abused. Power which could be used for good often became used for selfish and even evil purposes. And quickly, things got to be a mess. Unfortunately, they've just continued in our day as we've continued to make a mess of things. Now, we all have power, some more than others, but everyone has some. And if we use the power the way that God intended, we can do great good. But when we misuse it, we can hurt others. Power changes people. That's why we have to be so careful. Again, power itself isn't bad. It can be used for great good. That's why we see people who are using power in wonderful, life-giving ways. But coercive power, authoritarian power, abusive power can do great harm. Few naturally handle power well. It's especially true of those who grasp for power, those who try to hold on to it once they have it. It's difficult to touch power without being changed, even just a little bit by its seductive sway. Like Gollum's ring, the search for power can turn us into soulless, selfish people. The little band of followers who gathered around Jesus had a power problem, and it came to a head not one day not long before Jesus went to the cross. 
Now, all of us have had moments in our lives when we are embarrassed by something that we've done. Times when we lost perspective and in a moment, a moment of poor judgment, came to do something we would later regret. Well, this story is one of those moments for two of Jesus' closest followers, for James and John. What they did here revealed how gripped they were by worldly ambition, how much they wanted fame and personal reward. So Jesus quickly corrected them, telling them that greatness didn't come through ambition and power, but through suffering and sacrifice. It all started when the whole gang of them were on their way to Jerusalem. What happened, um, we find in Matthew chapter 20, beginning with verse 18. It's there that Jesus told his 12 disciples this. He said, the son of man, that's him, that's Jesus, will be delivered over to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he'll be raised to life. Now, the disciples didn't understand what Jesus was talking about. We immediately see how clueless they were in what comes next. But instead of being devastated by what Jesus said, they start positioning themselves for what they hope will be important positions in his political administration. They completely missed the point that Jesus' way to greatness is through sacrifice and suffering. It's at this point that James and John do something sneaky. They make a request of Jesus, but don't do so directly. Instead, they enlist their mother, hoping for a more sympathetic ear. It says, beginning in verse 20 of chapter 20, that the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want? Jesus asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Now, to sit at the right and left were positions of honor and authority. Specifically, what she's intending to say here is that they would be number two and number three in Jesus' kingdom. It's a crass play for power and influence, for applause and admiration, for a tangible symbol of success. It's clear from what has just happened that they didn't understand at all what Jesus had been teaching them. So he uses this opportunity to instruct them once again. Specifically speaking to the two brothers, Jesus says this. He says, you don't know what you are asking. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. Now, if you're confused by what they're talking about or what Jesus is talking about, you're not alone. He's using imagery found in the Old Testament prophets that those who are listening are more familiar with or were more familiar with than we are today. The cup he's talking about symbolizes God's wrath, his judgment on sin. And here it's used as a metaphor for what Jesus is about to experience for his suffering and death. Ultimately, Jesus is the one who drinks the cup of God's wrath, who steps in on our behalf and through his death on the cross, absorbs the punishment that we deserved. But there is also a cup for Christians as well. James and John were eager for fortune and fame. They were anxious to grab onto power and prestige and position. But Jesus asks them to be ready to experience rejection and persecution for their faith. Would they be willing to live a life of sacrifice and inconvenience? A life of service and generosity? A life lived for others and not for themselves? Sure, they say, we can do that. 
clearly not understanding what Jesus was asking of them. But Jesus also knew something else, and that is that one day it would be fulfilled in their lives, that these things would happen, even if right then they didn't understand what he meant. The Christian life includes sacrifice. For some, like James, the sacrifice would be extreme. It would be death. We know this from church tradition. But few are asked for that. But we all suffer in one way or another. For some, it's a moment of extreme pressure that might happen once or twice in a life. For others, it's a lifetime of struggle. The drink the cup simply means to follow Jesus where he leads and to be like him in any situation that comes our way. To be willing to be misunderstood or falsely accused. To endure hardship and inconvenience. A life lived for Jesus always comes with sacrifice. Now the story might have ended there, but somehow the rest of the disciples heard what was going on and they weren't happy. Verse 24, it says, when the 10 heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Now, the disciples' indignation came not from uh, humility, but from jealousy. They too wanted these important positions, and while they tried to use language that made them sound sort of pious and pure-minded, the truth is that they were annoyed that they had not thought of stepping in and asking for these important roles. So Jesus uses this as a teaching moment. Instead of power and position, he has a completely different idea of the kind of leadership that he wants them to exercise and pursue. So he tells them that there's a right way and a wrong way to lead. And the wrong way, well, that's the way of the world. The Romans who ruled with an iron fist or the Jewish authorities who had a zero tolerance policy for misbehavior. The wrong way, Jesus said, is to lord it over others or to exercise authority over those that you can. The right way, he said, if you want to be great, is to be a servant. Whoever wants to be first must be a slave. Jesus inverts here the role of a master and a servant or a slave. He flips it on its head. It was then and remains today a radical idea. Now we have our ways of measuring greatness. But greatness in the kingdom of heaven is measured completely differently. It comes not in telling others what they can do for us, but in asking what we can do for them. The measure of greatness is not how many people you can order around, but how many you can help. True greatness lies in service, not in power. The disciples wanted to be important people. They wanted power and prestige, but Jesus instead challenges them to live lives of service and sacrifice, to become servants and slaves, not masters. And then just to drive the point home, Jesus gives a personal example. Now in the moment, they didn't understand what he was talking about, but just a couple of weeks later, they would. Here's the way Jesus finishes. He says, the son of man, that's himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus didn't just explain what he wanted his disciples to do. He demonstrated it. His life purpose wasn't to grab onto the reins of power. In the end, Jesus never sat on a throne. Instead, he hung dying from a Roman cross. 
dying the death that we deserved and giving up his life in order to bring us back to God. When it comes to positions um, of importance, we want them for one of two reasons, either for recognition and rewards or for responsibility. So is the corner office and the fancy title, or is it the responsibility, the opportunity to serve and make things better for others? Do you want to be affirmed in order to control and shape things to your liking, or to sacrificially serve others? To get the attention that maybe others will look at you, or to truly make this world a better place? If it's recognition and rewards, it won't be long before you begin to think you deserve what you have. You'll be more about the perks than the responsibility. One day you'll wake up and find that your soul has gotten smaller. You'll no longer care for others in the way that you once did. You'll find that envy and selfish ambition have taken over. But if you make responsibility your motivation, you will find humility and grace growing in your heart. Of course, we are all never one way or the other. At best, our motives are mixed. Even on our best days, it's easy to allow selfishness to creep in, even as we try to serve others. The best way to keep right on the right path is to follow the way of Jesus, rather than grasping for power, as James and John did, to look to Jesus, to avoid the pattern of this world which tells us to lord it over others or to exercise authority over them. Jesus is the perfect example of how to use power well. Power didn't corrupt him. Instead, he used his power to serve others. And he did this all by giving himself up, offering himself as a sacrifice on our behalf. But frankly, the stakes are high. Power today is concentrated in the hands of just a few people and institutions. Power that can be used for good or for evil, but unfortunately, it's often difficult to hold on to power without it corrupting. Servanthood is the best way to invest our lives, but it isn't easy. It goes against the tendencies of our souls and against the grain of culture. So how do we break the grip that power has on our hearts? You might think that it comes in trying harder, in telling yourself to be better, to act nicer, or to be less selfish. And trying harder can help, but it won't get you all the way. So how can you learn to use power well? Well, first, be aware of your own power and the ease with which it can be abused. Remember that at best, your motives are mixed. Secondly, be intentional about inviting people into your life who can help you learn when you're using power correctly and when you're in danger of abusing it. Cultures that lack a healthy give and take can come to tolerate abusive leaders. That said, sometimes dissent itself can become unhealthy when it opposes the appropriate use of leadership. Moses faced this when he led the Israelites from Egypt to the Promised Land. Along the way, the people began to grumble and complain, some even insisting on returning to Egypt, using their power, the power of dissent, to try to derail the plans of God for his people. These things can cut both ways. A final suggestion is that the best way to free yourself from the corrosive effects of power in your life is to turn your attention away from yourself and turn it to Jesus. Jesus demonstrated how we can use power, and it comes in being the servant of all. Jesus wasn't a pushover. He didn't let people run all over him, even though he was the Lord of all, though he didn't use power in domineering ways. Instead, he came not to be served, but to serve 
and to offer himself or to give his life as a ransom for many. On the cross, Jesus served us by being our ransom. A ransom is simply the price paid to free a slave. Now, you might not think of yourself as a slave, but you are. Slaves to the power of sin in our lives. That's why when we find ourselves caught up in an addiction or in unhealthy patterns, um, patterns of greed and lust and selfishness and anger, we really are slaves to sin. But Jesus came to set us free from all of that. He died to free us from the power of sin in our lives. And by faith in him and in his death and resurrection, we can find freedom. And he frees us from the all-consuming quest for power, from the desire for fame and attention, from the desire to control the lives of others. Jesus gave his disciples a gift. He pointed them beyond their fighting and bickering. He enabled them. He told them how to take their eyes off of themselves and to put them on him. And then he taught them from his own example. To follow Jesus wholeheartedly means looking to serve others. So keep your eyes open. When you see a need, ask what you can do to meet it. When you see someone struggling, do what you can to help. And when you see something go wrong, ask God, what can I do to fix it? Let's pray. Father, make us aware of the ways in which we abuse power. Teach us to use power, the power that we have in ways that serve others. And when we do, do it not through sheer hard work and good intentions, but through relying on the power of your spirit in our lives. May we imitate the example of Jesus who came not to be served, but to serve the one who gave his life as a ransom for many. We pray this in his name. Amen.